0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As the agency that coordinates policing across international borders, Interpol should be above reproach. But after a succession of leaders who have ended up in hot water, there are calls for transparency on how Interpol does its work and how it appoints its bosses. And for libertarians shaking off the shackles of governments, one idea is to live on platforms on the high seas. That turns out to be tricky. Now there are some serious attempts a bit closer to shores. Attempts being run by, well, governments. First up though, Today, Aung San Suu Kyi, the former civilian leader of Myanmar, was sentenced to four years in prison, found guilty of inciting dissent and breaching COVID-19 rules. She's been charged with far more and far worse than that. It's more than a year since Ms. Suu Kyi's party won an election by a landslide. Just before they could take power though, the military carried out a coup. Public resistance to that led to a brutal, deadly crackdown that hasn't slowed down. Yesterday at an anti-government protest in Yangon, the country's most populous city, a military vehicle appeared to drive straight into demonstrators. Today's verdict accomplishes just what the ruling junta wants, taking Ms. Suchi out of active political life, and there's good reason to believe that she will in the end be imprisoned for much longer. That seems likely to crystallize opposition to the military even more.
0: So today the court hearing the trial of Aung San Suu Kyi handed down its first verdicts and entirely unsurprisingly it ruled that Suu Kyi was
1: guilty. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent.
0: Those are just the first two of 11. So she's been charged for a whole litany of crimes from a sort of ludicrously trivial one of possessing unlicensed walkie-talkies to much more serious ones like violating the Official Secrets Act, corruption. So Suchi denies all these charges, and it's pretty clear that these charges are trumped up so that the army can sideline her. They claim that the election that her party won in a landslide in November 2020 was won fraudulently, and that was the justification for their coup Back in February. So they have every interest in seeing her branded as a a crook. And if she's convicted of all counts against her, Suchi will be in jail for 102 years.
1: Which is, it sounds like, what we should expect at this point.
0: Absolutely. The court is supine. They will do the bidding of the military. Beyond that, it's hard to know what's going on in this trial. Journalists have been banned from the court. Suchi's lawyers have been prevented from speaking to the media. So we don't know how she is, what kind of condition she's in. We don't know what a response to the verdict is. And we also don't know whether she's going to be put under house arrest like she was before or sent to one of Myanmar's notoriously harsh prisons.
1: What about the response of, of the Burmese people, though? How do you think this verdict will land with them?
0: I think it's likely to anger them. After the verdict was announced today, I spoke with Dr. Sasa, the spokesperson for the National Unity Government, which is a, a kind of shadow government formed of exiled parliamentarians. He thinks that the verdict is going to instigate much more resistance.
2: Another level of pain and suffering, and that will instigate in the hearts of the minds of the people of Myanmar. Just imagine if your elected presidents or your elected leader of the nation are unfairly treated in that way. That's the same reason why the people of Myanmar were on the street protesting after-
0: Opposition remains really strong, despite the horrible violence being meted out to protesters and and, and people in opposition to the coup. More than 1,300 people have been killed Some 10,000 people have been arrested since the coup. Yesterday, a military truck rammed into a crowd of protesters in Yangon. It ran over a couple of people, and eyewitnesses said that soldiers then opened fire on fleeing protesters and beating others. Five people have died from that incident. And yet, despite that, in the evening, people went back out into the streets and they kept on protesting. Day after day after day, we see incidents like that, where this horrible brutality is being meted out by the military. And yet, the people of Myanmar, they keep on resisting.
1: And is this just a small, hardcore of very serious protesters, or is is the whole country up in arms at this stage?
0: Well, I wouldn't say the whole country is up in arms, but large swaths of the population have decided on Violent resistance. So in October, a UN expert described the situation in Myanmar as a civil war. So since February, hundreds of rebel groups have emerged. And these range from quite small underground cells operating in cities to militias in the countryside, that number in the thousands. And of those 250, perhaps 50 are conducting sustained operations. And these guys mean business, right? So these protesters turned guerrillas operating in the cities. They're planting bombs. They're attacking police stations, military compounds. They're conducting assassinations against low-level regime officials. And in the countryside, some of these new militias are getting training for much more established ethnic minority groups. And even fighting the military together, the ethnic minority militias, in turn, they're seizing the opportunity. The military's is deeply embattled and and increasingly stretched thin.
1: And so, in that sense, the, this battle between the junta and Miss Suchi, trying to paint her as a crook, is is really just one of really many battles going on in the country at the moment.
0: Completely, these ethnic minority militias, they're angry not just with the military but also with Suchi, who they feel basically ignored and belittled them while she was in power. So while the guilty verdict won't mean much to them, it will mean a lot to the many Burmese who continue to idolize her. Dr. Sasa, the NUG spokesperson I I spoke to, he really thinks that violence is gonna
2: ratchet up. But the people of Myanmar have said enough is enough. It's do or die. If we do not overthrow them, we all will die. Very simple. So it's a.
1: Where do you think this is going? These are just the first of what will be many verdicts that we're to expect. Will again be guilty.
0: Su Chi is going to be deemed guilty again and again and again. We're going to have a sort of a steady drumbeat of convictions. That's just going to pour fuel on the fire of this conflict. Neither side has the ability to prevail currently, as the conflict is kind of currently constituted. And so I just think in the short term, Myanmar is going to spiral into this cycle of oppression and violence. The junta, extraordinarily, optimistically, has scheduled a new poll for 2023. But if it really understood the public and and what it thinks about the current political situation, it would know that it has no chance of winning that election. People's lives have manifestly gotten worse since the coup. You know, 200,000 people at least have been displaced since last February. The World Bank thinks that growth this year is going to contract by a whopping 18 percent And, you know, the bad statistics just keep on rolling in. The UN thinks that nearly half the population is gonna be below the poverty line next year. And to make matters even worse, the person who embodied the hopes of the Burmese nation for so long has now been silenced and removed from the political scene once again.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie.
0: Thank you, Jason.
1: It's the last week that we're running our survey, trying to find out what you think about the intelligence. Take your chance to weigh in at economist.com slash intelligence survey, or just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks a lot. The world's largest police agency doesn't have any officers of its own. But Interpol plays a crucial role in tracking down fugitives and coordinating international sting operations. In recent years, though, allegations of undue influence have been piling up, with growing concern that the institution is beholden to authoritarian regimes. The appointment of a controversial new president isn't helping. The
2: importance of Interpol has actually grown over the past years because crime
1: itself has gotten more globalized. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent, but he's been doing a little cross-border work, too. Eighty to ninety percent of
2: investigations that police chiefs tend to look into have a global or international nature. And it's now got a new boss. The man who has taken over as president of Interpol is a rather controversial figure. He is a former Inspector General of the UAE Interior Ministry. He was elected by secret ballot by Interpol's General Assembly. Now, Mr. Raisi is facing accusations of complicity in torture or abuse in five different countries, including, perhaps most importantly, France, where Interpol has its headquarters. al Raisi has denied the allegations. So has the UAE. Two people that we spoke to for this story, Ali Ahmed and Matt Hedges, uh, both UK citizens, allege that they were tortured in custody in the UAE between 2018 and 2019 and have formally accused Mr. Al-Raisi of responsibility. So the top job now belongs not only to a country with a poor human rights record, but to a man
1: accused of torture. So again, Mr. Raisi denies the allegations, but still, how is it that someone facing accusations like that ends up in such a powerful position?
2: The president of Interpol is not that powerful a figure. His is not an entirely symbolic post, but it's a post that is significantly less important to the running of Interpol than that of the secretary general. But Mr. Al Raisi, as Interpol's president, is and will be the face of the organization. So his election is a reputational risk already, which can have real consequences. As one Interpol official told me, reputational damage means damage to trust. And damage to trust means that countries might be more reluctant to work with each other or to work through
1: Interpol. Still, though, um, important or not, as you say, there are risks here. It's, it does seem strange to have someone who's under this cloud as, as the head of the organization. Indeed. And
2: unfortunately for Interpol, Al Raisi is not the first controversial figure uh, to be elected president. Interpol had previously elected Mang Hongwei, a Chinese official, as its president. Mr. Mang was later detained and sentenced to 13 years in prison for corruption in China. A few presidents earlier, Jackie Selebi, South African president of Interpol, was convicted of taking bribes from a drug trafficker. Now, all this and other factors have revived concerns that Interpol is coming under the influence of repressive regimes.
1: And what does that influence look like?
2: Al-Raisi or Mr. Meng can, in fact, be the symbols of this influence, but... The real influence that repressive regimes try to exert on Interpol is to use the organization to get to political opponents, notably by way of red notices, which are issued by uh, Interpol at the request of individual governments, and they are akin to international arrest warrants and Russia has tried to get red notices for some Kremlin opponents and critics, China has done similar. China has uh, had some success in extraditing uh, Uyghur dissidents by way of a red notice, or by having different governments arrest them on the basis of a red notice. We have to acknowledge that Interpol has managed to stand its ground on several occasions, but authoritarian governments have actually succeeded on more than a few
1: occasions in using Interpol to track down their critics. So this this does not seem aligned with what Interpol really ought to, to, to be doing. How did it get to this point?
2: The most visible problem right now is the election of Mr. Al-Raisi as president of Interpol. And his election and the election of other officials from authoritarian countries exposes what seems to be a flaw at the heart of the Interpol election system. Elections to top posts are quite opaque. Elections are conducted by secret ballot and formally candidates to the presidency are only presented at the start of the General Assembly, which is to say, you know, two days before the vote, which critics say prevents proper scrutiny of those running for Interpol president. And all of this makes backroom dealing almost inevitable. And China, in the past, has been known to offer investment and foreign aid to get its candidates elected to posts in international institutions. And there is suspicion that the UAE has done something similar to get
1: Mr. Raisi elected. All all of this stuff, as you say, undermines the institution's credibility, tarnishes its its reputation. I mean, what does reform look like to, to bring it back to what people think Interpol could be? I mean, Interpol has taken
2: some steps to address the issues we've been talking about. They have improved the screening mechanisms for red notices, in addition, Interpol has tightened the eligibility criteria for members of the executive committee, um, who now have to be active members of their national police forces. But there's certainly work to be done, voting should certainly be made uh, more transparent, and Interpol might be wise to do away with voting by secret ballot some of these concerns are in fact resonating among some members of Interpol. In her speech at the Interpol uh, General Assembly, the Czech Vice President for Europe of Interpol who was running against Mr. Raisi, said let us show the world that Interpol is not for sale in what really seems a thinly veiled reference to the lobbying efforts by the UAE. Unfortunately, following the vote, the world might have come away with a different conclusion.
1: Piotr, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Are you tired of all those irksome demands by your government? All that overweening oversight, all that legislation, all that tax? Maybe seasteading is for you. Be free by taking to the sea. It's something that libertarian types have long been thinking about, and attempting. But with rising sea levels on the horizon, and populations rising with them, life on the water is starting to have far wider appeal.
3: Climate change is making floating cities more of an inviting prospect, but this has been something that some libertarians have dreamt of for years.
1: Elise Burr writes about foreign affairs for The Economist.
3: Fans of seasteading talk about setting up self-governing hamlets in the ocean, which would charge little or no tax. If you make the ocean an attractive place to live, now all of a sudden people are going to be competing for space. I mean, that's one thing that the seasteaders always say is like governments have a monopoly on land, but they don't have a monopoly on the sea.
1: And governments aren't going to like the sound of that.
3: Governments aren't so keen on seasteading because of the tax implications, and some of them see it as a violation of sovereignty For example, in 2019, two people built and lived in a seastead, which was basically just a floating shack that was about 12 miles off the coast of Thailand. And the Thai government wasn't having it and towed away the seastead soon after it was built. And the technology isn't quite there for building settlements far away from shallow waters. It's really hard to get supplies, and there's less protection from storms far out to sea.
1: So government responses like that suggest that the ideal of this isn't really plausible.
3: Right. Well, seasteading, which is the libertarian movement, is still a really long way off. But floating settlements that are within government jurisdictions already exist. There's some in Brunei, Nigeria, around Lagos, and also in Vietnam and Cambodia. But a lot of these are slums. They don't have access to sewage. Some don't have electricity. But floating settlements closer to shore could provide opportunities for increasing city space and also adapting to rising sea levels. Some Asian countries are trying to encourage this. For example, in November, officials from Busan, which is a port city in South Korea, said that they plan to offer space for a floating neighborhood near to its shore.
1: But a floating neighborhood is a very different thing from a floating shack for a couple of people. I mean, is is this really possible?
3: It is realistic enough to have an endorsement from the UN Habitat, which is the UN agency that deals with urbanization. So Oceanics, the company that aims to build and fund this project, said it's going to cost around $200 million and have space for around 300 to 500 people. Oceanics really brands this as an alternative to land reclamation. They say it could be economically competitive with land reclamation and it would be better for the environment. And eventually the hope is that they could link up a bunch of these platforms to house up to 10,000 people. But You're talking about that in a city of three and a half million. And South Korean cities do have a history of backing large infrastructure projects that benefit local industry. The hope is that this one would boost shipbuilders.
1: So with that kind of UN backing with the shipbuilding expertise, do you think all of this is going to make a seasteading proper look a little more feasible for the people who want to see more of it?
3: I think for the libertarians that these projects are going to show the sort of technological feasibility of it. I guess there are oil rigs out in the middle of the ocean. It's like, how do you have a libertarian utopia if you need supplies from other countries? I mean, everybody says that the biggest issue surrounding seasteading is the political issue rather than the technological issue. So the project in South Korea would help innovate with the technological issues of building a floating city, but it wouldn't deal with the political issues of having a little utopia in the middle of the ocean.
1: Elise, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.